Good morning and happy Father's Day. Um, as Hannah was sharing there, we know that today kind of carries with it uh, a lot of different emotions. So wherever you're at today, we want to meet you in that. But hopefully, and most importantly, we want to turn our attention and our gaze during this time to our Heavenly Father, who was able to meet us in all of our needs um, with his great love for us. So welcome to Aletheia Church. Um, if this is your first time here, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, parents of kids uh, that you're just missing to Aletheia Jr., you can just send your kids back to the back and the teachers will be back at those back doors. Uh, just a quick note for you parents so that are picking your kids up later. Normally you pick your kids up out here uh, because the upstairs room is where the elementary school age kids go. Uh, they're remodeling that room for the next couple weeks. So your kids will actually be back behind the stage here through these doors over here to my right, your left. Uh, and they'll be back in the cafeteria. So that's where you'll go and pick them up after service. Just wanted to let you know. Um, if this is your first time with us and you haven't had an opportunity to get a scripture journal yet, just raise your hand. We have some uh, ushers that would love to give you one. That's our free gift to you. Uh, we strongly value the word of God here when love for you to be able to just take notes during the sermon if you feel led. You can take it with you. No strings attached. It's literally just the gospel of John with the ability to take notes, and we would love for you to have that. So um, as you're turning over to John chapter 8 this morning, that's where we're going to be. Hannah just read that for us. Uh, I want to pose a question for you to consider uh, as we begin to unpack the text this morning. So how many of you have ever been told something about yourself that you had a hard time believing was true? Okay, a few honest people. Thank you, guys. Right? Uh, specifically, you know, when you, when you receive criticism or negative feedback from somebody, it can be really, really difficult to receive that feedback or criticism, especially if you believe the opposite is true. You know, years ago, uh, when Pastor Daniel and his family first arrived here in Gainesville from Seattle, uh, Daniel would have told you that he considered himself a consultant when he first moved in, which is interesting because I didn't hire him to be that. Uh, but that was the title he gave himself when he first came into town. And so you know, he would point things out that he saw about the church, which was actually really, really helpful. You know, Pastor Daniel had planted a church in Seattle. He led a church through a merger in Seattle. And so when he got here, he had a lot of experience and things to help us kind of just consider and process through as a leadership team. And one of one set of feedback he gave me early on during his time here was that he noticed in my preaching and in my tone that my passion and my energy and my expressiveness and my excitement for God's word was coming off more aggressive than I intended it to be. And so he, he, he expressed that his fear was that those that came and visited the church or heard me preach were going to perceive that I was yelling at them during the sermon when that was not my intention at all. I hear a few people giggling. Maybe they, he was right in that assessment. And as he gave me that feedback, one, I would argue that maybe it was a little too early in our relationship for him to be sharing something so um, heavily critiquing my ability. But immediately as he started saying this to me, right, I believed something different about myself. And so my mind does what our minds often do when we hear feedback or criticism that doesn't go with the narrative we have constructed for ourselves. And I immediately started on the defensive. I said, well, you've just gotten here. How could you know that? You've heard like three sermons. Like, who are you? You know, uh, well, people still come to the church. So clearly something's okay. 
right? It's not like I'm preaching to my wife and my two kids. Like there's other people here on a Sunday. I even went so far as to say, if someone's not as passionate about the scriptures as I am, it's their problem, not mine. And upon further reflection, though, and I, I view this as a real gift of God to me personally, upon further reflection, I was forced to take this test with a, a group of other pastors that asked other people to give feedback on your behavior. And on aggressiveness, I scored a 9.7 out of 10, which was interesting considering that I was saying that I wasn't aggressive, but part of this test was also giving your own feedback, and I gave myself a 10 on the test, right? So you read that, and you're like, oh, whoa, oops. And so as I continued to process through this, then my wife kindly indicated to me that she thought Daniel's feedback had merit, and that although she knew my intentions and my love for God and His Word and making sure that it was clearly articulated that I should consider that my high energy and passion could be misconstrued for aggressiveness and harshness and should take that into consideration. Needless to say, I was humbled and thankful and have, have attempted to, at least since that day, more closely examine and consider my tone, my demeanor, and my delivery, not just in preaching, but in all things. You know, and sometimes people will still say, like, dude, you're crazy. And I'm like, I hear you. I'm sorry. You just need to understand that I have ADHD and it's going constantly. And sometimes that comes out the wrong way, but it's out of a love for God's word and for you that I am this way, but I apologize and let me correct my tone. See, receiving feedback or instruction when we don't believe the feedback or instruction that we're receiving, though, can be something extremely difficult to receive. And this is exactly the situation Jesus is faced with in our text this morning. A number of people, as we saw last week, have just heard Jesus exclaim to them that he is the light of the world, that we talked about that he's at this feast of the tabernacles and that there was this ceremony during the feast of booths that, that they lit the, the menorahs inside of the temple court every night to remember God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness, to remember God's faithfulness to them in that season, and to look for the coming light of the Messiah to save Israel. And so this was a big deal during this uh, feast and festival every year. And Jesus has just, in the middle of this lighting ceremony, stood up and said, I am the fulfillment of all that this festival represents to you. I am the light of the world. And as he talks with the Pharisees and the scribes that were there in the temple courtyard that evening and explains why he is the promised fulfillment of this ceremony, it says in verse 30 that some actually believed in him. And so you think, good, they're finally starting to get it. They see that Jesus is here to save and rescue them. And yet Jesus, in our text this morning, is going to immediately challenge that profession of faith that they have. And he's going to tell them that to follow him and know him as God and Savior and Lord and King involves a full surrender to him, not just a mental assent 
to some theological truths. And this is going to challenge many of their assumed beliefs and their worldview of what it means to be Jewish and what it means to follow God. And it's going to ultimately kind of cascade into next week a full-blown rejection where you see them for the first time attempt to actually murder Jesus. And so look at the text with me. I've just got two points for you this morning. The first one I want us to consider is this question. Are we really free? Look at verse 31 with me in John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, as I just said a moment ago, the context that we are in here is not with the scribes and the Pharisees in in so much as Jesus is now directing this statement towards the people who have just professed that they actually do believe that he is the light of the world. So he's not talking with people who have rejected him full stop. He's talking to people who have actually received him and accepted him. Probably another way to think about this is if you grew up in the church and maybe you just think you've always been a Christian, you're right along the same people who are professing faith in Jesus at this moment. But Jesus knows something specific about what it means to be his disciple that these men and women who are gathered there in their in that courtyard don't seem to understand. And oftentimes for those of us that grew up in the church, we seem to miss as well. Remember Jesus's words in, in Matthew chapter seven. I want us to, to look at them for a second because I think they will give us a, a little bit of a, an idea of why Jesus is immediately taking the discussion in this direction. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this starting in verse 21 of Matthew chapter seven. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, Jesus' statement to these new professing disciples is belief in me will certainly bring you out of darkness and lead you to life. But examine that belief because true belief abides over a lifetime. It is not a one-time profession. That word abide there in John chapter 8 as Jesus shares it with this crowd means to remain or to continue or even more strongly means to never depart. You know, it's why sometimes when we talk about like in theological circles about believing in Jesus and, and, and what salvation means for us, you'll hear people use terms like eternal security. And while I believe in the general kind of precept or mindset behind that statement, it's not exactly what the Bible fully teaches. What the Bible actually teaches is, is a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. And what that means is that if someone is truly in Christ and has the Holy Spirit residing inside of them, They remain and abide and persevere through the highs and the lows of life, continuing to trust in the lordship of Jesus in their life. 
And while that does communicate eternal security, sometimes eternal security doesn't communicate the full weight of the highs and lows that you're going to walk through in your life. And we believe oftentimes, sometimes, if we come to church and just pray a prayer and trust Jesus that we're never going to suffer again and that nothing's ever going to go wrong again. And when those things happen and we're faced with those challenges, we blame God rather than understanding that's not exactly what eternal security teaches us. Eternal security is that God's faithfulness and love and grace and mercy to you exists no matter what you've done or what you will do, but you continue to abide in the finished work of Christ for that grace. See, confessing that you believe in Jesus is important, but true discipleship manifests itself through a lifetime and the life of a believer. To put it another way, Jesus is describing here in verses 31 and 32 a universal truth about his disciples. And that is this. To know him and to be his disciple is to abide in him. And to abide in him means you will produce fruit. To put it in theological terms, you will experience sanctification. And so Jesus is immediately challenging these disciples, or at least these professing disciples, right after they've expressed faith in him. He looks at them and says, good, know the truth that I am the light of the world. Know that I am God. Know that in your own condition apart from me, you are in darkness and that you will not see eternal life. Recognize your need for God in your life. Recognize your need to be set free from all the things we run after in this life that do not satisfy. But know that in abiding in me, that is where one is truly set free, not just in a profession of faith. See, what Jesus is talking about here is that to abide in Christ means we are saved from the power of sin now, sanctification, but also saved for future glorification when we're raised from the dead. And so we, here we see Jesus proclaiming, don't just think because you said you believe that you are fully immunized and don't need to follow me. Because true abiding shows that you will actually submit to my lordship in your life. True belief will lead to action and fruit, even when things are difficult. And this immediately becomes difficult, right? Because we're now getting into that murky waters of faith and works, right? And here's what we need to understand. What Jesus is saying here is true faith produces true works, but true works cannot produce true faith. But false faith never produces true works. It's why Jesus says that the way is narrow that leads to life. Because it begins with faith and surrender to the lordship and work of Christ and then leads to abiding. And not surprisingly, right, imagine you're there, you've just professed that you believe in this guy, and this is the way he turns the tables on you, right? Immediately, this crowd 
does not care for Jesus's words because they fully understand what, what he's saying. Because basically Jesus has just looked at them and said, you saying you believe me is not enough. And it's because Jesus has a kind of unique ability that the rest of us don't have. He knows the hearts and thoughts and the intentions of man. It's why he says earlier in the Gospel of John that he trusts himself to no one. But they're going to immediately push back in verse 33. Look at what it says. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Right, so here Jesus says, abiding in me will truly lead to freedom for you. And instead of saying, how do we experience that? They're like, you're wrong, Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about, right? This has shades of what we saw back in John chapter six, where Jesus was talking about the bread of life. And after this, he, he gave that full discussion, discussion on how he was the bread of life. And it says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So people had followed with Jesus, done ministry with Jesus, walked with Jesus. And the moment that Jesus said, I am the only way you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood to be saved, people are like, we're out. We, we want to follow you, but we want to follow you to that level. And so here back in chapter eight, right, these disciples are looking to Jesus and they're saying, look, we're already free. What are you talking about? And not surprisingly, anytime you see pushback against Jesus and something he's trying to teach a crowd, it's because they're thinking in the present, they're thinking in the flesh, and they can't stop and consider that Jesus might be presenting something to them that's outside of what they normally think about. And so Jesus says to them, right, if you abide in me, you will be free. But they don't view themselves as slaves. And I want you to pause and think here for a minute because I actually think Americans living in the United States in 2023 have a heck of a lot in common with first century Israelites. See, the Israelites believed themselves to be this privileged, chosen group of people. That everything was God's design, that God loved them, that they were more important than everyone else, that they were God's chosen people, which was true. Theologically, that was true. But simply because they came from the line and the heritage of Abraham, they believed that they were free and that, they, that God loved them and that they didn't need to follow or obey God's word or consider anything that Jesus might be saying to them. Sound familiar? Guys, like I've been internationally. I know what people think of Americans in some ways internationally. It's not always positive. Right? Like when I was in England visiting my brother-in-law, right? Like every place I went, oh, you Americans, you're so loud and prideful. It's like, well, we got a reason. We told your king, get lost. Right? Like proud of that. And yet that same pride can lead to privilege, and that privilege can lead to blindedness. Especially when there's neediness or we're being corrected in a way that needs to actually be corrected. In the same way that I thought I was just this amazing preacher, that I was just this finished work of art, that God was allowing to come out on stage each Sunday. And Pastor Daniel walked in and was like, whoa, man, rough around the edges. 
The Israelites think that they are this finished work simply because they can trace their heritage back to Abraham. And Jesus is saying to them, that is not enough. And look at what he says starting in verse 34. Jesus is going to bring out the truth hammer. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. All right, so I wanna, I wanna take a few minutes and I just wanna break this down for a minute, right? Because what Jesus is doing here is he's going to a challenge the assumptions that the crowd holds there in light of what Jesus has just said about setting them free. He's gonna, he knows all of the assumptions. He knows where their privilege is going. He knows where their thought process is and he's gonna immediately challenge it. And when you see that line, truly, truly, whenever Jesus says this, he's basically saying, listen up because what I'm about to tell you is true and you don't understand it currently. And so the first challenge he gives to kind of like their, their worldview or their belief system is that they are enslaved to sin. To put it another way, Jesus looks out over the human race, so each and every one of us in this room, and he says, you are all slaves. Every single one of you. And he follows that up by saying, if you practice sin, and that word practice in the Greek means just participate, meaning if you've ever sinned, you practice sinning. He says, if you practice sin, you prove that you are a slave to sin. He says, everyone practices or sins some of the time. You are proving in your sinning that you are a slave to sin and your Jewish heritage will not buy your freedom. See, sin is far more dangerous than I think we care to admit. Like so often, even if we grew up in the church or, you know, here we are in the South, right? So we're good Bible belt, church going Christians, right? That we, we, we know what sin is a lot of the time, right? When we hear that terminology, here's how we kind of tend to view sin. We think, oh, I just do some bad things. I lied to my wife. I was harsh with my son. I borrowed that pencil from a classmate with no intention of ever giving it back. I gossiped about so-and-so in the name of asking for prayer for them. Right, the list can go on forever, right? But we think of those things as just little minor hiccups and blemishes on a product that's actually just fine. But see, when Jesus talks about sin in the scripture, he says, hey, sin's not a scratch on the fender of your bumper. It's an engine that won't start. It's complete and utter brokenness. You know, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Right, Talking about Satan and his attempt to pull people towards sin. James says this, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, I think it would be important for us as the people of God to take a step back and honestly reflect here a moment and understand that when Scripture talks about sin, it's not just talking about, hey, we do some bad things once in a while. No, it's talking about an enslavement to something that we can't free ourselves from, which will ultimately lead to our own death, both the death of opportunities with the consequences that it brings here in this life, but more importantly, a spiritual death in relationship to our Heavenly Father. And you know, the crazy thing is, is during the Festival of Booths, actually one of the things that was observed during this festival for the Jews was this thing called the Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur, right, in the Jewish calendar. And the Day of Atonement was where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice for the sins of Israel, saying, we understand that we are a sinful people and need atonement made before God for our rebellion and our sin. So it's not as if this shouldn't have been on the forefront of the crowd's mind as they're standing there inside the temple court talking with Jesus. And yet they cannot get past their perceived security and their perceived okayness because of their privilege. And guys, if I'm honest, having moved to the South about 12 years ago, I see a similar struggle for people who grew up in the church. We think that because we came to church or because we're here because so-and-so or my favorite one is when I'm meeting somebody and talking to them the first time about God and I'm like, hey, like, so like, are you a Christian? What does that look like? And you're like, yeah, my, my grandma's a Christian. I'm like, gosh, I did not know that it passed through the bloodline. Yeah, well, I've just always been a Christian because grandma was. I'm like, not how it works. Happy for grandma. Grandma probably laid a great foundation for you, actually, like my grandparents did. But that doesn't save you. Right? The scripture teaches that we must reckon with the reality of who we are, slaves to sin, as Jesus is saying here in John chapter 8, and then follow and submit to Jesus, the person, not a religion, like the, like the Jews were. See, Jews were okay with Jesus, as long as he fit into their system. And Jesus comes along and says, mm -mm. I am the system. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus challenges their concept and their notion of freedom because they aren't really free. They're enslaved to sin. And, and I want to encourage you this morning, right, either as a follower of Jesus or not as a follower of Jesus, is just to consider your relationship with some of the things that you might consider sinful patterns and behaviors and tendencies in your life. Because oftentimes we delude ourselves into thinking, oh, I've got that under control. I can stop that whenever I want. And when you think about it more deeply, you realize that it has far more control over you than you dare imagine. 
Getting back to exactly what Jesus is saying here. Now, not only does Jesus challenge their notion of freedom and their very autonomy and identity, but he goes on to say, I'm the son, you are slaves. And that there is a massive difference between being in the son and being in slavery. And he juxtaposes this, this, this position between sonship and slavery. Because he wants them to understand what they're going to be missing out on. He says, so if the son, the, excuse me, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. He goes, if you, you think just because you were born in the line of Abraham, that you will live forever and spend eternity with God. Mm-mm. The only one who remains forever is the son and those that abide in him. Your Jewish cultural heritage buys you nothing. But what I offer and bring is eternal and will last forever when sin offers nothing. And then lastly, he goes so far as to challenge even the very authenticity of their Jewish heritage. Look at what he says. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Notice how he doesn't say, you do what you've heard from Abraham. Now, what does he say? He says, you do what you've heard from your father. He's like, I know by birthright you're Jewish. And that gives you all sorts of rights and privileges inside of the Jewish religious system. But I'm not convinced you are truly his because you do not fully believe and trust my testimony. If you really were Abraham's children, you would believe in me and trust in me. See, this is a foreshadow because he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. We're going to see in just a minute that Jesus is going to throw down and bring out the boxing gloves. I want to challenge us to just stop and think for a minute here this morning because many of you might be like I was. You grew up nominally going to church, nominally spending time around other Christians, and you thought that that meant you were a Christian. And you've never really even pondered to stop and ask the question that the Jews in this courtyard were forced to reckon with that evening with Jesus. Am I really free? Or am I a slave to sin? And this goes further than just your heritage. This goes further than just being a free American versus living somewhere else. This goes against the the very concept and idea of free will versus slavery. See, we're taught as Westerners that we are this free, autonomous people who can make and decide and and go wherever we want to go with our lives. We can do anything we want to be. We can be anything we want. We can do anything. That we have the free will and the agency to do anything, right? And I would go so far as to say this. The Bible does not define free will in the way that we tend to view it as Westerners. It's why theological arguments on free will and predestination and election always kind of end up cracking me up because I think like the definition of free will that most of us espouse and hold to is not the biblical notion of free will. 
See, free will as it's defined by us in culture and context says that the power of acting without is, excuse me, that free will is the power of acting without the constraint of necessity or fate. It's the ability to act at one's own discretion. And at face value, when we give that definition, it's real easy to say like, oh, of course I have free will, right? I can choose after church today to go to Taco Bell or Bole or eat at home, right? I have free will. But the Bible says something little, a little differently. The Bible says that none of us are free because we are controlled by our desires. And that our desires are naturally wicked and rebellious towards God. They desire evil and pursue sin. This is why Jesus tells them that they're enslaved to sin. Let me give you a simple illustration maybe to unpack this a little bit, right? Because I don't want to have a a debate about Calvinism or Arminianism up here this morning. This is not the place to do it. But I do want to reveal to you that we aren't quite as autonomous as we think we are. If you were to go to a restaurant this afternoon, right, you might pause it and say to me, well, I have free will to choose whatever I want from the menu. And I would respond to you, yes, but you are enslaved to whatever desire is strongest in that moment. You might look at me and say, well, what do you mean by that? Like, like that, that doesn't make any sense. I'm free to choose whatever I want on the menu. And I'm like, no, you will be controlled by whatever desire is strongest. Your strongest desire might be to lose weight and choose the healthy option. Your strongest desire might be to eat the tastiest thing on the menu, which may destroy your diet. Your desire may be to save money, like my wife. What can, what can I get BOGO in here? That's what we're doing. Your desire may be to try as many things as possible and, and taste a little bit here and a little bit there, Right? But what will win out is not your free will. It's whatever desire is driving you. And the Bible says that if your desires are wicked, therein lies the problem with our free will. It's not that we don't get to make choices. We actually do. But we're driven by those choices based on our desires. And our desires are wicked, as Jesus says here, just like our Father. And this is something that Jesus has been trying to teach over and over again to those listening to him in the gospel of John, that without being born again unto God, John chapter three with Nicodemus, it is impossible to desire the things of God over our wicked desires. That even when we choose to do good things, those things are rooted in something wicked and evil because we are enslaved to sin. And this is why Jesus cries out here in John chapter 8 to answer his call to recognize that we are enslaved to sin and that he is the only one who can truly set us free from that slavery. Jesus' call to the crowd is truly believe in me, not just what I can do for you. Truly abide in me, not just profess faith in me. Follow me. Believe me, trust me, and know that I set you free from your enslavement to sin and death. To put it another way, to abide in Jesus is to not just make Jesus Savior of your life, but also Lord of your life. It means He's in charge, not you. 
See, Christianity actually teaches something really, really interesting. It teaches freedom, but it also teaches slavery. But it's a movement of who that slavery is to. We are either enslaved to our sin and the prince and the power of the air, as he's called in scripture, or we are enslaved to Christ. And only one of those offers true life and true freedom. So Jesus drops this. And as you see there in verse 38, Jesus has foreshadowed to something. And I think the crowd sees it because they respond to him in a way that's going to start becoming really, really aggressive and conflict laden. Look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. Right? So see what Jesus is saying here? He's just, he's just continuing to challenge these preconceived notions of what they believe. It's like, you aren't really Abraham's children, otherwise you would believe in me. And this is kind of a confusing argument. So I want to go over to Romans 4 real quick because I think it'll help just explain it to us. Right? Look at Romans 4 starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So remember, he's talking about to his Jewish compatriots here. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So Paul is just starting out by saying here, hey, the law had not been given yet, yet Abraham believed in God. And we see that God said in his word that because Abraham believed and trusted and placed his faith in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. That was his work, not following the law. Now, now go down to uh, verse 9 with me. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So he's talking to the Jewish people and he's saying, hey, to be Jewish, the sign of circumcision had to be on you to show that you were a part of Abraham's offspring. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Right, he's asking a rhetorical question here. God had already declared him righteous. He hadn't been circumcised yet and neither had his family. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now that is a very Paul way of saying, trusting in Jesus is what saves, not your family heritage or even following some sort of religious tradition or principle. He says it's entirely possible for you as Jews to have followed the Levitical law and to have been circumcised, but not truly be of Abraham's offspring. Just like it's entirely possible to grow up in the church, take communion, be baptized, and not really be in Christ. And not surprisingly, 
right? They don't care for this, right? Jesus says, like, look, like, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, you don't look like Abraham's offspring to me because Abraham loves me. And you guys seem to want to kill me and not follow me. That's not what Abraham would do. Like, if you were really Abraham's offspring, you would have faith in me, right? And not surprisingly, right, Jesus goes on the attack in verse 41 and just says, yeah, you're doing the works that your father did, which he's immediately saying, that's not Abraham. <laughs> and then look at them. They, they clap back, right? V verse 41, second half. We were, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God, right? Now, I think this is a little dig at Jesus's earthly heritage, right? They're saying, dude, we know what happened with Mary, right? We know that you don't really know who your dad is. How are you going to sit here and tell us that we are not of Abraham and yet you don't even know who your papa is? And even if that's the case, our dad's God, which by the way, Jesus has been making abundantly clear that that's who his father is and they still missed it, right? But they clap back on it. And Jesus, right? Just something to point out here. This is like whenever Jesus is in a debate, Right? This is something for, like, I just like, this is an aside real quick. Notice how they like, can't actually deal with the theological truths that Jesus is presenting to them and the way they're being challenged. So what do they resort to? It's called ad hominem attacks. Whenever you're watching two people debate in something and you see one side just attacking the character of the other person, just tune it out, right? Because it means they're not actually engaging in discourse that's going to help anybody, right? They, they've resorted to personal attacks, and that's what they're doing with Jesus. They're like, well, well man, we know about your dad, so we can't, we can't trust you. And Jesus, right, steps back and says, yeah, God's not your dad. Trust me on this one, right? And in verses 42 and, and through 47, here's what he's going to say. If you actually were God's children, you would love me because God the Father sent me. And here is who your dad actually is, Satan. Yeah, that's right. Your dad is the devil. And you obey him just like Adam did because Adam surrendered to him and you're like your first father, Adam. See, the reason you are pushing back on me is because you are of the devil and he hates me. As a matter of fact, you cannot even bear to hear my word because he can't bear to hear it, because the truth is not in him, and he can't bear to hear the truth, because he's the father of lies. And just like your father, Satan, you love lies. And the moment I start speaking the truth, it pushes up against your comfortability, it pushes up against your narrative, and you hate it. And then look at how he challenges them. I have no sin in me, and if I don't, Convict me of something. However, I'm declaring that you're enslaved to sin. That's how you know that I am of the Father and has been sent, and you are of your father, the devil. It's like the ultimate mic drop moment, right? <laughs> it's just like, just examine your life and examine my life. We'll see, who, we'll see whose father, who really loves their father. You claim to love the Father. You don't even know who He is. The reason you do not hear them is because you are not of God. Now, guys, admittedly, 
That is a big pill to swallow, right? right? Jesus has just turned their entire worldview upside down. He's told them your works aren't good enough and your heritage is not good enough and that they're enslaved to sin. But remember, he's also offered to them the remedy, which is belief in him. To be humble, to surrender, to believe that Jesus came and lived and died in their place for their, to satisfy the wrath of God for them on the cross and rose again to defeat sin and death. All of that is going to happen. We're going to see next week how this finishes up. And I don't want to steal all of Pastor Daniel's thunder because he's going to lead you through it. But this discussion and this debate is going to finish with the crowd who had just got done professing belief in Jesus to turning around and attempting to stone him on the spot. That's some belief, right? This is why I said earlier that just making a simple profession of faith in Jesus is not sufficient enough to display fruit in Christ. That Jesus says you must abide in him. See, they want the light of life and what it can offer, but they don't want to abide because they can't see their slavery and they love it. And so here's how I want to finish our time this morning. right? Because I think Jesus leaves us with a real challenge and something to consider. Whether you're here this morning and not a follower of Christ, but you're here because mom or dad drug you to church or a roommate did or a friend begged you to come or a coworker, or you just show up to church because, well, that's what I did and my life's kind of a mess right now, so hopefully God will fix it. I've been there, done that. Or whether you're really a follower of Jesus but you're not actively abiding, right? Here is the call to you this morning. Non-Christian, you need to ask yourself, am I really free? Because Jesus would say to you, you are not. That you are a slave to your sin and your desires. And that the only way out of slavery is to be purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. My encouragement to you is don't leave this room this morning without turning to him, being freed, and then learning what it means to abide with him daily. for the Christians in the room. Are you living and abiding in your Lord? You know, if, if, if sin leads to death, as James says in James chapter one, and Jesus says that we are enslaved to sin, right? It means that theologically what occurs in the life of a Christian is that we're actually made alive for the first time when we believe in Christ. It's exactly what Jesus is trying to get across to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And my pastor used to use this analogy and illustration to talk about sanctification all the time, and I think it was super helpful. He's like, Christians, 
you were in the tomb, in your casket, buried six feet under, and Jesus dug up the grave, opened the casket, and brought you to life, to, you, to use an illustration. And like, not like zombies, like truly breathed life into you for the first time. He goes, and yet as Christians, right, so often we've been pulled out of the grave. We, we leave the graveyard and then things get a little uncomfortable. And what do we do? We run back and get back in our tomb. We run back to the promises of what our sin used to say it would give to us, but never deliver on. To what we know is comfortable, but what actually brings death and disease. And so Christian, the encouragement to you this morning is you are alive and free. Abide in Christ. Don't run back to your casket. Experience sanctification and abiding in Christ by being renewed by the truth of God's word, not just on Sunday mornings, but daily. And taking hold of the promises of God in Christ by repentance and faith daily. By being encouraged to be in community in the church, the body of Christ with accountability and help in the highs and the lows. And living under the power and with submission to the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to abide in Christ. And if you're a younger Christian in here, seek out an older one. They will tell you what living the abiding life in Christ looks like. What it looks like to experience daily being set free from bondage that enslaved them. to live encouraged in what their Savior has done. That is Christ's call to us, to truly be free and then to live as if we actually are.